Welcome to our podcast. This teaching is a part of our Sunday morning service at Garden City Church in Southern California. For more information about our church, visit GardenCityChurch.co. This morning, we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. When you have that open in your Bibles, would you stand for the reading of God's word? If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you on the back table. You guys can grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, but you have one at home and you left it, we have it up here on the screens. We're taking care of all our bases here today so everyone can see the scripture and visualize it for themselves. Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God. Amen. You can have a seat. Through this process of church planting, I've tried to figure out a particular day that I can take off. Because if you're anything like me, you're that workaholic type, you find yourself like, oh, I forgot to make this graphic. Oh, I forgot to do this thing on the website. Because as you know, um, I am number one employee of church and only employee of said church. And so if you need help in the IT department, in the graphic design department, in the maintenance and custodial department, I get all emails and receive all of those. And so as I'm thinking through some of these things, oh, I forgot this graphic design, and oh, shoot, I got to think about Easter, and oh, shoot, I forgot to upload the podcast, which I have not done from last week still. I apologize. You are getting a double dose tomorrow when you get Pastor Jarrell's from last week and also mine from today tomorrow, both on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, plug-in, all that. That's good. And so as I've tried to figure out this Sabbath routine, I understand Sabbath is a very important aspect of my life. I understand that. I need Sabbath. Because if I don't have a day of rest, a day where I don't open my computer, I don't look at email, I'm not scrolling through social media, I need something that is a way for me to reset and recharge so that I can prepare and get ready for the rest of that week. I hope that you have found a rhythm of Sabbathing as well. It is an aspect of that silence and solitude that plays a big role. In fact, speaking on that, that was another thing I wanted to mention. Um, There's a discipleship program that we're going to be investing in And it's through a ministry called Practicing the Way. Uh, Pastor John Mark Comer from the Portland area, who used to be over Bridgetown Church, if you're familiar with that, he has stepped down from being a pastor over that church to, to focus in on this nonprofit organization, a discipleship network called Practicing the Way. We have been um, accepted as one of the the pilot churches for this program, and so I've got a couple of seminars coming up that I'm going to be involved with in the next few months over Zoom and talking with him and other leaders about what that discipleship track looks like for our church, and so I'm really excited about that because it's not just, oh, let's get small groups going, and then boom, we're like, hey, cool, all right, cool, we're in small groups, and just kind of whatever. This is a long-term goal. This is like, what is our five-year, what is our 10-year, what does our 20-year discipleship program look like? And so that's what we're going to be gearing up for soon. And so one of the aspects of that is silence and solitude. But anyway, one of the things that I do for my Sabbath rhythm 
involves a routine of trying to golf as much as I can. Now, obviously, I don't have enough money to do all that because golf is a very expensive habit. And I used to play at this course where I now live. Before I lived there, I used to play over here at Tuckwick Canyon. It was a, a place that many guys would love to come and drive out to Beaumont when there were no homes around it, just the golf course itself. And now that I live here, it makes it that much easier to play. I just played a few weeks ago. My wife and kids were able to say hi. We live off a second hole over there. And so whether I'm either going to the driving range just to practice or I'm actually playing a round of 18, I use my Sabbath rhythm to also be my gospel and evangelistic opportunity. Now, I'm not going to the golf course trying to convert people on the spot like, hey, I'm a pastor and I'm here to convert you. You're stuck with me for 18 holes. Let's go play some golf. When I play here at this course and near the church, I usually play by myself because what I do is with golf etiquette, if you know it, you usually play in twos or in fours. You play with a twosome, you play with a foursome, and so I usually will just sign up myself to play for a round knowing that I'm going to be added to another group because I'm by myself. So just a few weeks ago, I got paired with these guys, Tim and Paul, who are from Boston, Massachusetts. Not sure why they're out here in Beaumont, but we were playing together and it was great. And as we get on, out on the course, you start to meet each other, you get to know each other's names, and then... You get up to the first tee and you're ready to hit your first drive. And so that's when you really know who you're playing with. Like, are these guys good or is their ball going to shank to the left or to the right? Am I going to actually have to um, be the better golfer here in this round, which actually I was terrible and these 75-year-old golfers were killing it. So I have hope that knowing when I'm 75, I will hopefully be able to hit the ball straight at some part. Because when you come to this first hole, you start to measure each other up, and, and that would be for any type of social gathering, right? You're, you're measuring up, like, what shoes are they wearing, what clothes are they wearing, what car did they drive in, and so you, you start to talk the lingo, you dress the part, but if you can't play the part, it will be exposed rather quickly. And so by hole three is when you start getting into the conversations of things. You know, do you play here often? Do you have a family? What do you do for work? That's always a question around the third hole. And they always ask me. I don't ever really try to like pry too much. And that typically changes the demeanor of those who I'm playing with. And so in particular with these two guys, they found out I'm a pastor. I told one of the guys, and so he went back to his cart and like, hey, this guy's a pastor. Like, you know, we need to be on our behavior. And so he comes out of the cart and he's like, oh, so you're a pastor. And so we start talking and things like that. It's different from the guy who I played with a few months ago. When on hole one and two, he started talking all kinds of crap and he started making all these crude jokes. And then by hole three, he's like, so what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. And he's like, if you told me you were a pastor on the first hole, I wouldn't have said any of those jokes in front of you. And I said, well, that's not on me. That's your fault. Like, now that I'm here, you should be convicted, but you shouldn't be talking like that anyway. Why didn't you tell me? I wouldn't have told those jokes. Should I wear a giant badge around my neck? I started wondering, like, hey, it's like those bumper stickers you see on cars. Should I put one on my cart? You know, it's like the baby on board, or if you read this bumper sticker, you're too close to me, or, you know, caution pastor on golf course. Like, my position as a pastor causes others to feel a sense of conviction and accountability to their demeanor of the crowd that I'm in. Now, I'm not actively seeking to convert people on the golf course, but my office of pastor causes one of two reactions while I'm playing. Well, you see, pastor, I, I, I'm not the religious type. 
I don't, I'm not that guy. I don't really like the whole religious thing. I don't like a church and its structure and things like that. Whatever. Okay, great. The second reaction is I used to go to church, but I don't go anymore. I'm not even asking if they go to church anywhere. They're just of their own volition speaking these things out, and it's great. I get that, and I understand where they're coming from. I'm not necessarily trying to convert anyone. I mean, if my presence alone scares them, then maybe they need to be converted. But the reason I give you this example is to show you how ordinary our discipleship to Jesus can be. I love golf, and so because of that, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to practice my Sabbath rhythm by myself, and then, of course, with my family, we do other Sabbath things. But what you can also see in your life are the things that you enjoy doing or the coworkers you're surrounded by, that it is the simplicity of where you are now that allows you to see the ordinariness of our discipleship to Jesus. We think in order to make an impact in this world for the kingdom of God, we have to have some sort of influence or title or position that gives us the right to do that. When Jesus never said it was about a position or a title, he said it is about the perspective of you knowing who you are supposed to be. And so it doesn't have to be extravagant or flashy or touted all over social media. It can be as simple as playing golf and letting someone ask you what you do. Now, obviously for me, that looks a little different for each of us. But in your context, I'm sure you can pretty quickly identify the ways that you can ordinarily follow Jesus. And so here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is getting at this idea of being, as a follower of Jesus, salt and light. We've heard so many sermons on this. We preached a little bit about this throughout the summer when we were in Daniel chapter 6, walking out your witness and allowing ourselves to understand what does it mean to be salt and light in a realm of persecution. There is a very good reason that Jesus introduces this idea right after we hear about persecution. Pastor Jarrell speaking last week on this idea of persecution and the expectation that comes with it is only Jesus' greatest way of getting into, because you're going to be persecuted, remember this, John 15, 18, right? Know that if they hate you, they hated me first. But the whole point is that now with understanding that the persecution will come, regardless of who you are in Christ, you will experience it. And because of that, now go and live your life as salt and light in the world. For the follower of Jesus, this text is very familiar. It was possibly made into a theme for a youth summer camp. It's the highlight of the conversation on evangelism and witness in the world. It is the salt and light graphic that is made by the designer that's used to create logos and images that are modern and inviting. However, there seems to be a disconnect between this idea of being salt and light in the world and living an ordinary life as a follower of Jesus. Over the last several weeks, we put the Beatitudes under a microscope to see the happenings of the disciple of Christ, mainly the true follower of Jesus who belongs to the kingdom of God and is practicing their faith. It is someone, the Beatitudes are meant for those who understand this is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And now we transition into this is how you live out the kingdom of God as salt and light. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 2, because this gives light also to a great perspective on being salt and light. Romans 2, starting in verse 17. 
It'll come up on the, oh, no, it won't come up on the screen, but it says that you're supposed to read it, so do that. Uh, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Why? Because of you. Paul's getting to this reality that the Jews who had everything they needed in order to live the life that God had called them to was the very thing keeping others from seeing the God they were supposed to serve. They were the ones who received the knowledge and truth. They were the ones who had everything they needed in order to understand what it was required of them in obedience to Christ. They had the law. They boasted in God. They knew his will. They approved what is excellent. And yet at the same time, because of what they did, it showed a different story. Paul's reasoning for this speech in Romans 2 shows us the disconnect. It gives you the reality of what was spoken by the Jewish religious leaders, but was not lived out by them. And so we understand that when Jesus calls us to be salt and light, it is not just an understanding and a knowledge that we receive, and then hopefully it will begin to come out in us. It has to be intentional, and its order must be one of humility. Followers of Jesus are like salt. Although we're ordinary and everywhere and get involved in pretty much everything, whether we're noticed or not, we also have a variety of roles to play as God's kingdom comes on earth. Jesus was adamant to remind us of how we are salt and light in this world. It was not a command to be obeyed. When Jesus says you are the salt and light, he's not commanding you to go and be salt and light. He is saying you are salt and light. That's just it. There's no other way around it. I'm not asking you to be salt and light. You are salt and light. Whether you want to be or not, that is if you are a follower of Jesus, you are salt and light. You cannot get away from it. Salt, as we learned over the summer, is a way of preserving and enhancing. We saw five ways in which salt can do that. By flavoring, by preserving, through sacrifice, by destroying particular things, and even used as a fertilizer. Light itself is to expose the darkness. We understand that the salt of the earth is to preserve and to enhance and that the light is to expose the darkness because we know the world's darkness can be overwhelming. We see it all over the place. Our souls recognize the wrongness of our fallen creation, but no matter how devastating the darkness becomes, John 1.5 tells us that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. God is light, 1 John 1, 5. He has made us children of light, John 1, 2, and 3. And essentially, then, as a church, we are a gathering of light bearers. We understand in our culture and in our society, it's not easy to be a dedicated Christian. Our society is not a friend to God, nor to God's people. 
Whether we like it or not, there is conflict between us and the world. Why? Because we are different from the world and we have different attitudes and different responses to particular things. In fact, one of the kindest things that Christ could do for us was to prepare us for that opposition. By telling us we are salt and light, no matter how we feel on the subject, he is giving us a heads up. Jarrell alluded to it last week in our sermon on persecution, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so these verses on salt and light are more connected to the previous verses in the Beatitudes than they are moving forward into the topics of anger and divorce. And so if we were to examine Jesus' sermon prep time and to see his outline, this transition from the Beatitudes into the salt and light would be the end of his first point. Pastors will usually give points in their sermons. I tend to stay away from those because I feel like it puts me in a box at times, especially with alliteration. You have to have all like point number one starts with the P and point number two starts with the P and point number three starts with the P and your gospel is, you know, something with a P. It's like alliteration just makes me feel really overwhelmed and it's just, it's better understanding through a narrative, especially because we are in a narrative in the gospel that this idea comes to life. And so when thinking about the Beatitudes, it can paint a picture of a feeling that is potentially anxiety-inducing. It is precisely this negative picture that provides the background and even requires this teaching on salt and light. And that's what presents the problem for us at times as we try to live out this salt and light of the earth. If you've ever signed up for an email, or you signed up for a subscription service, and you had a seven-week trial, and you forgot to cancel said seven-day trial. I said seven-week, huh? I meant seven-day. Seven-day trial, seven-week trial would be great, but a seven-day trial, uh, that just happened to me recently, and I was like, oh, crap, like, I have to pay this, and I didn't mean to, and I now have to pay for a whole year. It's great. That's what happens when you sign up for a subscription, Seven-day seven trial, like, yeah, sign me up, and I'll just keep creating new emails so that I can have this unlimited subscription forever. You're welcome. Um, there are some, especially during election time, when you get all these different, like, Congress emails and whatnot, like, I don't know who you are. I didn't sign up for this. And so I go in and I unsubscribe from all of those. If you're, if you're signing up for something in particular, you have to be okay with the results, my senior year of high school, I found out in my last semester that I couldn't graduate if I didn't have a theater class. I had to be in a drama class. If you know me, I'm not, I'm not drama, okay, first of all. Second of all, I hate, like, productions and plays and things like that. I was homeschooled. Okay, this is how bad I was at school. I was homeschooled, and if I didn't take this theater class, I couldn't graduate from homeschool. It's like the easiest thing on the planet. And so I had to take this theater class. It was terrible. It was, I had to dress up and play. I think it was, I don't even remember what it was. I was a pirate for some reason, and I hated it. I was the class clown because it was my, my front for the awkwardness of being in theater and dancing around for people who were watching me. It was weird, and now here I am kind of doing the same thing. The things that, thank you, Cindy. The things that we sign up for whether subscription or a loan for a house or for a new car or something like that, we have to be okay with those terms and conditions. People get freaked out that Instagram is listening to you 
And it's scary because you get ads from Amazon, like I was just talking to my friend about this very thing. If you didn't realize in the terms and conditions when you signed up for said app called Instagram, it reads that you give them the permission to listen in on your conversations. You need to be okay with the results of what you sign up for. And so it is as a follower of Jesus, you need to be okay with what you signed up for. Oh, yes, once I experience and come to recognize the grace of God in my life, when I come to acknowledge the sin in my life that so easily entangles me, I'm thankful for the empty tomb. When my troubles meet Jesus, it gives me a clearer path to enduring through them. But with that comes the focus upon your life. To be a disciple means to be an outward-focused agent of the kingdom as you invite people to honor God with their lives. Yet the disciples have just been told that this kind of kingdom living will clearly result in suffering. Yes, I want grace of God. Yes, I need the forgiveness of my sins. I recognize my fallenness before Jesus. And so if there's an opportunity for me to experience that freedom and the chains that are being broken from the bondage of sin, I want that thing. But Jesus says, careful, because you're going to be persecuted. Why? Because they persecuted me first They will also persecute you, not because of you, but because of Christ. And yet what we tend to do is we use this image of persecution as something wrong with us. Therefore, we shy away from living a life that is outwardly expressed in our faith to Christ. This image of being salt and light, complete with its warnings and its exhortations, are like the pushing of a young bird out of the nest to fly. It is required because the prospect of injury is quite fear-inducing. Who wants to suffer? Nobody. Nobody wants to suffer. And Jesus' disciples need to be clearly exhorted and even warned to be going into the world as his agents of the kingdom is precisely because of the prospect of persecution. For the things I sign up for, I need to be okay with the results, even the things that I'm hoping, well, by, by day six, I'm going to cancel that free trial. And by day seven, I forgot to unsubscribe from it. And so now I'm paying for a whole year of something that I didn't even want necessarily or could pay for. <laughs> um, it's like my daughter who loves to play board games. She's obsessed with board games. She's really good at uh, guess who right now. You know, you've got your two little, your blue platform and your red platform. You've got to guess who your person is. She's really good at it. She doesn't know the person's name, so we have to help her with that. But she's really good at these games, so I, I kind of let her win a few times. But then there's a moment when dad's like, uh-uh, like no more winning for you. There's another game called Spot It with these cards, and we play that as well. And so I start just owning it. Like I'm going undefeated for like 10 rounds. And she's just like, I hate board games. This is stupid. And she's just like floored at this whole thing. She throws a, you know, a tantrum, and she has a meltdown, and she doesn't want to lose. Who does? No one likes to lose, but you need to be okay that this is the result of what happens in life. We cannot be disconnected from God as a follower of Jesus, and this text tells us that this position comes with the territory. What we struggle with as followers of Jesus is the readiness to move on from something that no longer satisfies my cravings. I've lost an an appetite for that flavor. I've lost interest in that thing or in that person. There is very little difference between how the world operates in that regard and how the church operates in that regard. 
This is the disconnect that keeps people from following Jesus wholeheartedly. I did a funeral this past week, one of three funerals I did this last week, and the first one I did was for a 30-year-old mom who overdosed. She left behind two children, ages 12 and 5. She loved her family so much. It was a moment where she had gone through 10 different rehab facilities. She was doing really, really good. She was clean for quite a while. But her boyfriend was away visiting his mom in Arizona, and he took the kids with him because she was working late night shifts and he came home and found her in the house because she had just one momentary relapse and she knew that amount that she was addicted to and she took that amount and her body went into shock and things happened and so I, I got to preach obviously at this, at this service on Wednesday morning and I got to talk to her mom and then I got to talk to her boyfriend. Her boyfriend had said like, hey man, look, you can, you can mention scripture, but like don't preach. And I was like, well, if you look under my name, it says preacher, that's what I do. And so if you don't want me to preach, you might need to find someone else to do that. And he said, well, do you preach like Joel Osteen? And I said, <laughs> I said, I said, brother, I live in Beaumont, okay? Like I don't have you know, an arena full of people listening to me. He was like, no, you, you know what I mean. And I, we were kind of joking and that was my way of like, you know, just relating to him, like, brother, I'm, I'm not anything like Joel Osteen. I don't preach this, you know, I ain't, you know, the Bible says I am what it is, whatever, and like, you give more, you get more, things like that. And he said, I don't, I don't like the church. In fact, he was so adamant against the church that he and his girlfriend just a few weeks ago had been baptized in someone's backyard in their pool because they recognized that that was something they needed to do. So they got baptized but he's like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not about the church. I don't want you to talk about anything about the church. I don't, and he, you know, continued to make all these different things. And I said, brother, look, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to respect your wishes, but you also have to know, like, this is what I do. You're asking a construction guy not to build a house. It's what I do. And so I went in, and I, as respectfully as I could, preached the gospel in such a way Many people came up and asked for our church location and where we are if we're online because they'd love to watch and see our services. You see, when you disconnect yourself from what you are called to do and what Christ is calling you into, you start to lose favor with the word and you gain ground with the world. But friends, we were never called to gain ground for the world. We were called to gain ground for Christ. And regardless of how people feel about those things, we must come to terms to recognize that we cannot disconnect ourselves from what God is calling us into and who we are to be in this world. Again, the church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. It is a place where you can find healing and restoration. But to his defense, he's been to enough churches where he's seen people who do particular things on Sundays and then walk away and do worldly things throughout the rest of the week. And that's the disconnect. The church has so often catered to the world and to its inklings and to its concert-driven fog machine, lights and laser beams all over your face and loud music that you can't even hear anymore because it's so loud, all for the sake of Jesus. But what do we compromise when we give up particular things, when we make it more about what I have to say rather than what Christ wants to say? A recent study came out 
about Christians and the church attempt to dissuade congregants from getting a divorce. The research confirmed a finding identified by Barna a decade ago that born-again Christians have the same likelihood of divorce as do non-Christians. It goes on to say this is not only left to the, to the statistics of divorce, it's the barometer we use to show that it is an issue and we wonder why it is happening, but we also add to the level of divorce, drunkenness, adultery, anger, and materialism. The article, I think, has a lot to say about what the church has been willing to compromise on. And even, in fact, there is a recent documentary that came out about a particular church and its waywardness and how its pastors were getting away with some of the most egregious crimes of all. But what we have when we try to disconnect our following Jesus publicly, not privately, is we have a recipe for disaster. The only time they seem to be watching the world is when something bad happens, when there's a scandal. And there have been more than enough in these last few years. Some of the most prominent names in all of, dare I say, Christian celebrityism has found its way to their pastors resigning because of these said scandals. We've made it normal for us as Christians, to move on from God like we do from that, ne that Netflix show we just can't binge any longer. We've made it normal to move on from being the church because we don't want to be held accountable to anyone higher in authority than ourselves. We've made it normal to move on from discipleship because we don't want the community to know our deepest and darkest secrets, whether out of embarrassment or shame. It is the church that is supposed to be safe and secure and salty. It is the place in which you can find rest and restoration. But when the church functions too much like the world, it loses its light and saltiness. Whether you have or someone you know has experienced a particular abuse in the church, or you're just not quite ready to move on from your comfortable Christianity, you must know that God is greater than your pain. He is greater than your anxiety. And what happens is that too often the pastor becomes the savior to some because they are an embodiment of someone who can identify with weaknesses and sins, but I have to tell you, I am not your savior. Yes, I deal with what you deal with. Yes, on particular instances, we struggle in the same ways, but I am not your end-all, be-all. I must point you to Jesus who understands much better than I do the hurt that you harbor. So whether you want to flee for freedom's sake, as so many people are doing, well, I can't be salt and light in, in California because it's just so democratic. It's so blue. Like, Jesus is clearly not in this state. Well, guess what? He's coming back, okay? Like, it's going to happen. So flee to Texas if you want. Flee to Idaho if you want. People have, feel, have felt called to that particular thing. And I'm not jaded by that, but I'm called to this place. So whether you want to flee for freedom's sake or you just don't want to do the church thing anymore, when you sign up to follow Jesus, you are signing up with a guarantee for trouble and trial. But John 16 says, Jesus says, take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus has called and commissioned us, this greatly beloved church, to live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're not garlic or paprika or sugar, we're salt. Salt preserves and fends off the decay Salt can heal and soothe. It has a medicinal value. Salt can bring flavor and enhance other flavors, but salt only works when it's out of the salt shaker. 
You see, there's this tension that exists between wanting the blessing of being in the kingdom, but not wanting to listen to the king. There is a sense in which salt cannot really become unsalty, but contamination can cause it to lose its value as salt. Its saltiness can no longer function. Jesus is not speaking of losing salvation. God does not allow any of his own to be taken from him. But John 15 gives us insight to what this means. John 15, 1 through 8 says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. The trouble and the trial comes with the territory. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Many days I find myself weary and worn out, observing the overflow of the discontentment, the apathy, the unkindness, and the anger in my heart. Just ask my wife. I blew up on her yesterday. You can ask her, and she'll be more than happy to tell you, but we've already worked through that. I've already asked for forgiveness. And sometimes I wonder, why am I so cold spiritually? How can the fruit of the Spirit, how can this love and this joy and this peace and this patience and this kindness and this goodness and this faithfulness and this gentleness and this self-control be more evident in my life? Jesus is providing insight both into the cause of our spiritual dryness and the solution for living a bearing fruit life. John 15, if you remain in me, my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. We understand that spiritual vitality is only found in Jesus. When we spend our days thinking we can do life on our own, running from activity to activity, working harder and harder to impress others, the natural result of our independence will be dry and a withered branch. Impatience, unfaithfulness, unkindness, and a lack of peace are signs of our self-reliance. In contrast, as we abide in Jesus through his word, prayer, and with his people, we find ourselves spiritually refreshed and renewed. Jesus provides nourishment, the Father faithfully prunes the vine, and the Spirit works within us to bear that fruit. All that we need for a fruitful life is right in front of us. We are simply called to put on Christ, trusting that he will warm our hearts as we abide in him. And the way in which we can live out our salt and light in this world is by identifying the voice of God and remaining attached to it. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So the questions that you have to ask yourselves today are these. How am I supposed to be salt and light in my marriage? How am I supposed to be salt and light in my parenting? 
in my neighborhood, at my place of work, in my retirement, in my relationships, in my interactions with strangers and with friends, in my interactions with other people that I'm getting to know, or the person who uh, cuts me off, that I want to flip off. What? Don't act like you don't do that. Be okay with the results that you signed up for. Be okay with the results. God, I don't, I want to be salt and light, but I'm just, I'm afraid of what my neighbor's going to say. He's going to know the door hanger was me. I'm afraid. Do you guys feel that? Like, uh, that's genuinely me. That's why I have my two little kids like, go put the door hanger on the door. They can't reject kids when they do that. And if they do, then they got dad to deal with. That's when I come in. Listen, I could give you a list of ways that you should be salt and light, but each of us with different personalities, different emotions, and different needs, we all serve the same God. And when you begin asking God how you should be salt and light in the world, you depend less on the sermon points and you start to depend more on the voice of God. When you begin asking God how you should be salt and light in the world, he will begin to give you the answers He will soften your heart towards the needs of your community and your family, but you must also know it's what you signed up for. You will have trial, you will have trouble. You must become conscious of your need for Jesus and your need to be salt and light because when we signed up for it is when we began following Jesus. We're meant to be in those places where conditions are challenging and life is hard. We are sent to enrich the soil, to kill the weeds, to protect against disease, to stimulate growth, and as we scatter Life springs up in unexpected places. When the people of God are redeemed, as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 35.1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. You see, our church must create communities of light that not only expose darkness, but illuminate goodness. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10. And his goodness is displayed when his people let their light shine. When churches choose goodness against the backdrop of oppressive wickedness, when churches include parents who treasure and train their children and spouses who work through their differences to the praise of Christ, our neighbors and our community witness goodness. We understand that the world's appetite for wickedness grows daily. So when our obedience to God's light-shining command increases in us, we offer an alternative way of life. Through our glad obedience, they can get a taste for something better. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And what's great about being salt and light in the world is that I am not my own light. I am just a reflection. I am just an image bearer of the one who created me. I am just the creation attached to the creator, and I say that my point is not for me to be like, oh, what a great message. Oh, you're such a good pastor. Oh, you, oh, so many good things in the community. Praise be to God. That's all I can do because my reflection is to give back to him, right? You are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't put it under a basket, that whole thing. Let your light shine before men that they may what? See your good works and... Give glory to the Father who is in heaven. If it ends with just seeing your good works, you've missed the mark. You've become your own source of light. And last time I checked, it will run out. We must remain connected to the vine. We must be the branch that Christ has caused us to be, the one that we signed up for that would bear much fruit. 
that we would find ourselves in the thick of what is happening in our community and in our culture to say, I'm ready to be salt and light in this world. As we come to the place of communion now, we recognize that there may be a disconnect from what we've lived out. There may be a disconnect from what we receive here on Sundays and how we live out Monday through Saturday. But this is an opportunity as communion, a part of our liturgical service, that we would find ourselves in a, in a moment of confession, in a moment of thanksgiving, and in a moment of repentance to remember Christ because that's what he said to do when we partake of this. And when we do it corporately, not only are we identifying with Christ in the upper room, but we are identifying with one another. And we are identifying that there are needs in this room that only Christ can meet. And that is why we remember the body and blood of Christ. As you contemplate communion this morning, consider your own relationship to Christ, whether in a moment of confession or a moment of joy, that you would come to this place with a heart that is ready to receive these elements as he has given to us to remember him and to give thanks for all things. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening. At Garden City, we believe the gospel has the power to transform lives, including yours. If you want to support our ministry and the message of the gospel, you can donate at gardencitychurch.co forward slash give.